welcome to the other side of midnight on the spinning globe with lots of news happening and special events. Richard is with us, but he's in the backgrounds, the smoke that's carrying from the California fires have made it hard for him to breathe and it's his voice is like laryngitis, so he's in the background Skyping us and Myself and the rest of the imaging team, we will be carrying on the show with Professor Chandra Wickramasinghe. I'm so grateful to have uh, his presence tonight. So the show, if you're looking for the show page, go to the other side of midnight.com. And uh, as I mentioned, Professor Chandra Wickramasinghe is our noble guest, and the name of the show is Life. On the Morning Star, the real story. So, life found on Venus. Hmm. So, the misleading headlines in many newspapers and social media outlets have been blaring for a week as Venus, the morning star, hangs provocatively in our morning skies. But what is the real story? Tonight... I'm deeply honored to have as our guest, perhaps the leading astrobiologist in the solar system, Dr. Chandra Wickramasinghe. Chandra has been pursuing evidence of extraterrestrial life, both in space and on nearby planets, for more than 50 years. So when this provocative news broke on Monday, he was the first person Richard turned to for the facts. One of those facts is... If scientists have discovered bona fide evidence of life floating amid the dense atmospheric clouds of Venus, at some point that life could have come to Earth. Yes. Tonight we explore perhaps the greatest mainstream scientific breakthrough so far in centuries. Long hunt for real extraterrestrials and what it could mean for all of us, for the rest of us. Richard's news items tonight are, the first one has to do with the death of um, Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was on the Supreme Court, and um, the death of Justice Ruth today represents a devastating loss for feminists who held up the 87-year-old as an icon of women's rights and as a bulwark protecting abortion rights and a wide range of other progressive ideals on the conservative Supreme Court. The Brooklyn-born jurist became one of the nation's foremost advocates against gender discrimination as a lawyer for the ACLU, decades before Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, appointed her to be the second woman to sit on the high court. The next news item has to do with a breakthrough regarding a treatment for COVID-19. Scientists at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine have isolated the smallest biological molecule that completely specifically neutralizes SARS-CoV-2 and the virus that causes COVID-19. These articles, you can find them on the page. The next item <laughs> has to do with life on Venus. Yes, this could be microbial life in the clouds of Venus. Traces of phosphine, pH 3, a gas thought to be a sign of life has been inferred in the atmosphere of Venus by scientists performing an experiment out of pure curiosity. And I'm sure our guest tonight is going to have a lot to say about that. And continuing that story of all the co the coinky dinkies, I like to say, earlier this week, scientists announced the discovery of the phosphine on Venus and a potential signature of life. Now, in an amazing coincidence, a European and Japanese spacecraft is about to fly past the planet and could confirm the discovery. So that's pretty amazing. 
I've really uh, sailed through those news items because I'm so excited to bring on Professor Chandra Wickrama Singh. He is an internationally acclaimed astronomer and one of the foremost pioneers of modern astrobiology. Chandra is famous for his pioneering studies on the carbonaceous nature of cosmic dust and the prevalence of extraterrestrial life. He is a recipient of several international awards and honorary doctorates and was a former fellow of Jesus College, Cambridge, and a professor at Cardiff University for 40 years. He currently serves as an honorary professor and director of the Buckingham Center for Astrobiology at the University of Buckingham, an honorary professor and director of the University of Ruhuna Center of Astrobiology in Sri Lanka, an honorary professor at Sir John Ketolawa Ketolawala Defense, forgive me, <laughs> Sir John Ketalawala Defense yeah. University. Did I say that right? Yeah, well, almost, almost right, yeah. Yeah, yeah almost <laughs> right. At Sri Lanka and the Associate Professor at the National Institute of Fundamental Studies in Sri Lanka. He is also a former member of the newly formed Institute for the Study of Panspermia and Astroeconomics in Jifu, Japan. He has written over 30 books and over 300 scientific papers which over 60 of these have been published in Journal of Nature. And welcome, Chandra, Professor Thank Chandra. You. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. I actually did practice Ketalawala, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got foreign, foreign names are very difficult to get your time around, isn't it? And oh, I, my I, goodness. So when you... Go ahead, dear. Yeah, I would find it equally difficult to, to pronounce a... A Hawaiian name or a, or a Spanish name or something. So I fully understand that. Anyway, life on Venus has been the big news now, of course, in the last week. And the reports that we see everywhere uh, are enormously hyped. Uh, I don't want to sort of uh, uh, play down the discovery. I think any discovery that points to evidence of life outside the Earth is to be applauded and commended and so on. And so what these guys have uh, found is, is an interesting discovery from astronomical telescope studies of, of Venus. Uh, they found signatures, as you said in your introduction, of the molecule called phosphine, PH3. It's a small molecule. It has only four atoms. But generally, on the Earth, it is not an easy molecule to, to make in, in a laboratory. It is, however, uh, a molecule that's uh, associated with degradation, a breakup of, of living systems or some living systems. So there is, there is a uh, tantalizing indication that this may be a, a confirmation of the existence of, of life. On, on Venus. And having said that, I mean, this uh, idea of life being present on Venus is not new. It's been around for quite a long time. I think Carl Sagan has discussed it uh, many, many years ago. And in a book that I published in 1981, this is way back now, uh, called Space Travelers, The Bringers of Life. And this is a book that Sir Fred Hoyle and I wrote. Uh, and we had a chapter in which we discussed uh, the possibility of life in the clouds of Venus. So it's not new, but it's been around. And uh, the evidence now that we've had from uh, the Cardiff group and, and the new telescope studies is, is really very interesting. Thank uh, you, Professor Chandra. If I, if I may, just for a moment, I want to also um, invite the other part of the team because they also have questions for you to interact. So this is going to be like a round table. Okay. So joining joining me tonight I have Timothy Saunders, Roger Braun, mm. Bob Harrison, Will Hi. Farrar, and Andrew Curry. 
and they will jump in. Mm, okay. <laughs> so, okay. So if you hear a voice, guys, identify who you are. Okay. <laughs> Please okay. continue. Okay. Yeah, well, I think to continue what I was I was talking about, the uh, Venus is 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 more or less a twin of the Earth. It's ex almost exactly the same size as the Earth. Have I lost you, or are you? Everybody's here. Oh, okay. No, I thought I heard a sound. Could have meant oh, that. Uh, probably because... a Skype chat happening. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's about this, as I said, Venus is uh, very often seen as the Earth's twin. It is almost exactly the same size, the same radius as the as the Earth. But of course, the conditions on the planet are are really totally different. On the surface of Venus, the temperatures are enormously high. So 400, I think it's something like 460 degrees Celsius. You wouldn't be able to survive on the surface and no life would be able to survive on the surface. But it has a thick cloud cover that extends uh, up to about 70 kilometers above the surface. And the temperature in that cloud cover is, is, could be very, very cold. And it goes from maybe minus 25 degrees Celsius to minus 75 degrees Celsius. And these are temperatures that we know uh, can support some kind of replicating, reproducing microorganisms. We know that from uh, the way that uh, Antarctic microbes uh, uh, multiply and so on. So it's it's not impossible to have considered the possibility, uh, the prospect of life in the clouds of Venus. And this is why many people have discovered this, uh, have, have discussed it and in a speculative uh, fashion for for many years. Um, the, the conditions are not only the temperature being very low, the conditions are also um, chemically somewhat inhospitable. A lot of sulfuric acid might be there and so on. But, um, the, 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 but, the, but it's not impossible to contemplate the existence of, of life on uh, in the clouds of Venus. So that's that's what where we uh, had got to before this new discovery was reported, and the discovery really gives uh, adds fuel to the, the hypothesis that there is life, that the clouds of Venus are sort of an active uh, uh, microbial habitat on on our sister planet. Uh, Excuse me, Professor. Yes. This is Ron. Uh, I had a, two questions for you. One, phosphine, uh, isn't that generally produced by, I know you use the word degradation, but isn't that, usually, isn't that associated with life because it's a byproduct of things that die? Yeah, it's a, it's a byproduct of things that die. But I mean, phosphine. Yeah, so therefore you have to be alive before you die. Or the thing has to be so. That's that. That's actually stronger evidence than it's, just it finding is, it is. Uh, DNA or something. Uh, it's no, no. DNA would have been much, much stronger evidence for for life. No, phosphine um, is huh? is, a, is a small molecule. As I said, it's only four atoms: phosphorus and uh, three hydrogen atoms. Uh, but but the stability of that, if you're going to make that in the laboratory from phosphorus and hydrogen, it's it's difficult. But if you start with uh, with a living object or living particle, living material, then the, uh, the, the that could be a, a fairly natural small product of degradation. I mean, you can get uh, bits of DNA, you can get bits of protein, and so on. But this is an, on the smaller scale, uh, the, the phosphorus and three hydrogen atoms. So it's. Um, uh, it's it's a it's a tantalizing su suggestion and it's a very strongly suggestive identification. But um, it's not like seeing a not like seeing a bacterium replicating or discovering either a protein or or DNA, which would be absolutely absolutely decisive, or DNA or RNA or whatever. So but they probably uh, weren't living at the surface. They weren't the guide. Yeah, well, uh, they would have been living in, in the clouds. The clouds could have uh, some kind of uh, biological circuit. There could be protected regions in the clouds where 
where replication takes place and so on. And these, these have been discussed uh, uh, as hypotheses, as theories. Uh, by Professor, the, the clouds, um, well, when did someone propose life on, in the clouds on Venus? Was that, how long has that idea been around? Uh, I think that's been around for at least uh, uh, 60, 70 years. Oh, there was, okay. Yeah, there was a gentleman called, uh, I mean, as I said, in, in our 1981 book, which is with Fred Hall called Space Travelers, The Bringers of Life is still available on Amazon. We had a whole chapter on the possibility of life uh, in the clouds of Venus. But there have been earlier discussions by, by other people. And uh, a gentleman by name D. Barber in England, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, he was a director of a astronomical observatory in the south of England, and he noticed that at every conjunction of the planet Venus, that is to say when Venus, Earth, and Sun are in a straight line, uh, there was a fogging of his photographic plates. Right In those days, I mean, you had uh, chemicals to essentially develop your plates. You took uh, uh, photographs of the sky and you put it in chemicals and so on. And the, and the chemicals had to be mixed in water uh, to, to produce this uh, developer. Right, and, and what they found was that, uh, what he found, he claimed, that whenever there was a conjunction of, uh, of Venus and the Earth, when they were in a straight line, when there was a straight line connecting the Sun, Venus, and Earth, there was uh, fogging of these uh, photographic plates. And he made the bold suggestion that, suggestion that microbes from Venus, the clouds of Venus, could be pushed over to the Earth during these uh, conjunction events. So would uh, he have been considered like the father of astrobiology? <laughs> Not really. I mean, he was, he was an amateur. He made this suggestion. And I think it was taken up by Carl Sagan and discussed in various uh, uh, places in, since uh -huh. that. Since when that did that. astrobiology become something that people, like, recognized? I mean, because it's such a bold idea. It's a bold idea that there's life on Venus or that there's life outside the Earth? That there's life outside the Earth in terms of, you know, oh, I think, yeah, in space. I, mean, I mean, no. when I think of space, you think yeah. of, you're always taught like it's this void that nothing could live in it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, I think that came, uh, the, the, I mean, there are antecedents to this idea in very ancient times, in ancient Greek uh, philosophy, Greek uh, study a Greek, uh, and Axergus was a Greek philosopher who talked about life everywhere and so on. But the scientific case, the strongest scientific case for life everywhere really came with me and Fred in the, um, in the 1970s, mm. uh, late, late 1970s, uh, early 1980s. Uh, in 1974, I think we were the first to, or I was the first to suggest that uh, uh, that the cosmic dust, these vast, gigantic clouds of dust that you see uh, across the Milky Way, that these are made of uh, uh, complex organic material. And uh, from that suggestion of 1984, Fred Hoyle and I elaborated on this over the next decade, suggesting eventually that the dust in space, this vast amount of dust that we see in space, colossal amounts of dust, uh, all the breakup of, in various stages, the break, uh, the degradation of living bacteria. And So um, I believe I'm speaking with the father of astrobiology. Well, I think people don't like to admit that. People are very uh, possessive about their own part in this story. But I would honestly say that uh, if not for Fred and me, this... Uh, idea would not have got as far as it did. Uh, there is, uh, there are some disputations about that, but I think these are the hard facts. The very first published literature that says that life is everywhere 
from astronomical data, from astronomical evidence, goes back to, to Fred Hall and myself. And there's absolutely no question about it. We have to, I think, like it or not, you've got to accept that uh, a guy from a remote part of the ex-British Empire working together with uh, the iconic astronomer of the 20th century in England, Sir Fred Hall, we were the the unquestioned pioneers of this. Um, oh, I think I agree with Kinthea. You're, uh, yeah, you get the laurel, uh, you get the laurel wreath. <laughs> what thank an you, honor because, to have you on the show, really. Uh, yeah, the uh, because the reason I admire your work is because it uh, involved the idea that life was pretty much the same everywhere. I never had a problem personally thinking that there was life everywhere. And as you said, back into ancient times, people tended to think that. In fact, it was really the early 20th century before anybody decided that that probably wasn't the case. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but the idea that it was all uh, congruent somehow, you know, yeah. the, rather than all just being random happenstance and going in every possible direction made so much sense and made it all much more credible. Well, I, th I think it's inevitable. I think the, the, if there is life anywhere the, and, and, uh, the, and the conditions are favorable on many, many, many billions of other places for life to take root, uh, it's inevitable that that life is connected to the life that exists uh, right across the galaxy. Uh, we are not disconnected from the universe. Even on the Earth, we receive at the Earth's surface hundreds of tons of cometary debris, organic material, inorganic material, all sorts of bits of rock and meteor, micrometeorites and so on. So we are, we, are, we are intimately connected with the universe outside of the Earth. Uh, that's, the, that's the story. And then it's from our own spectroscopic studies of the spectra of very distant stars and so on. We have established uh, this uh, huge uh, database that points to a uniformity, an uncanny uniformity of uh, of features of what I call spectroscopic features that uh, show that life is uh, is everywhere, pretty much as it is on the Earth. It's just so reassuring to think that if I manage to get a starship put together, it'll take me to home of Pilpot for I can eat the food. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I think you can grow yeah, potatoes. I mean, there, isn't that yes, science, exactly. science? Great potatoes on Mars and so on. There were talks, there were stories of that, isn't it? Yeah, it's Professor, yeah. Ron, may I ask a question? This is Timothy here. Uh, I'm just back checking a little bit. The discovery of this uh, phosphine on Venus, and I, I've read through various reports that it could be in the atmosphere, say, 50 kilometers above the, the surface of the planet. Yes. I, I'm also just checking on the distance from Earth to Venus, and it, it seems around 150 million uh, I just, kilometers. Kilometers. Kilometers, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, is it miles or kilometers? Kilometers, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. So what type of, you know, uh, telescope or recording device is capable of detecting such a small molecule at such an accurate height or altitude above the surface 150 million kilometers away? Oh, just telescopes. I mean, telescopes I, uh, uh, study the atmospheres of, of distant stars, of, of the stars that are uh, millions and billions of light years away. Uh, so it, the, the light from from Venus is split into its its many many spectral lines and components and so on. In terms of uh, composition, you can you can infer compositions from from uh, from what I call spectra, breaking breaking the light into its component wavelengths. You see dark lines. You see sort of bunches of lines that uh, characterize certain chemicals, certain chemical bonds. And so that, that part of it is very secure. I have no doubt mm. that uh, the astronomers uh, are able to dis de de detect in, uh, in not only in light. I mean, this, this is microwave and infrared and radio wavelengths and so on. All of these uh, substances, molecules, have signatures 
in uh, in all these uh, electromagnetic wavelengths from the visual to the radio and okay. so that's that's the way they discover so the distance is not a big deal for if you have okay. a telescope uh, if you have a radio telescope if you have microwave detectors and so on that's not a problem but the the problem would be if you want to if you want to transfer the microorganisms from the clouds of venus to to the earth how do you do it and this is again something that we had uh, myself and my colleagues have written about and most recently i think a 2005 paper that i published we argued that the solar wind at times when the when the uh, the sun venus and earth are in a, almost in a straight line uh, the the solar wind can essentially rip off parts of the atmosphere of venus that could be laden with these phosphine producing microbes and other microbes and some of it could uh, eventually be transferred to the earth in the solar wind we know the solar, we know the solar wind brings uh, brings stuff from the sun to the earth right so if that solar wind uh, crosses the venus atmosphere then then you could have venus uh, particles in venus dust in venus microbes in venus entrained in the solar wind and deposited mm. on the earth and that's that's the kind of i can see how what that about would the orbiters oh, sorry i'm just going to say ron i can see how that would work if the earth if the conjunction stayed in place but of course the whole time the solar system is moving it's dynamic in every way so if the solar wind has a certain amount of time uh, to travel between venus and the earth then is the Earth still in position to catch that those those molecules in the solar wind, or would it have to wait until the next time round? That uh, uh, do the, do the time <laughs> travel times work out? Yeah, travel the travel times work out. In fact, there have been experiments done uh, using I think what the latest, uh, the most recent was the, the SOHO uh, spacecraft that in the late 1990s, early 90s, early 2000s. Uh, this this is in the near earth environment right they actually detected uh, ions charged particles from venus arriving uh, near the earth so th these have been measured these have been actually detected and uh, assigned to a venus a source in venus so we know that that uh, atoms at least not the phosphine we don't know what where the phosphine comes in or bacteria comes in but if these charged atomic species from Venus uh, comes to the Earth d around the time of conjunction or just after conjunction, then uh, there is no reason why bacteria that could be sort of entrained in the solar wind would also be br brought. If you're, if you're bringing a huge wind of gas, then the, some microbes may be sort of trapped in that wind and, and come to Earth. It's a possibility. It's uh, if you think it's, uh, I think it's a reasonable possibility, but it's one has, that has to be uh, checked out. Oh, what about the Venus Express? Oh, oh I. Oops, sorry. <laughs> we're going. Yeah. We're about to go to break, so I okay. would let's hold that thought. You're listening to the other side of midnight. Our honored guest tonight is Professor Chandra Wickrama Singh. The show is called Life on the Morning Star, and we will return after the break. The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire... Our desire is to awaken your imagination... ...with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. 
It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, seven to nine p.m. Pacific time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. side of the midnight. Our honored guest tonight is Professor Wick Ramaching uh, Singh, pardon me, and the show is called Life on the Morning Star. Uh, co-host tonight, we're standing in for Richard, who is still having trouble breathing from all the smoke. He is in the background in the chat. Uh, the co-hosts tonight are Timothy Saunders, Ron Gibran, Bob Harrison, Andrew Curry, and myself, Kinthea. So we were just about to answer another question or ask another question, I believe. Uh, Timothy, did you finish your question? I know Ron wanted to ask a question, but I wasn't sure, Timothy, if you finished your point. I I was just really curious to run a couple of quick and dirty calculations in the background. <laughs> because I'm just trying to calculate what speed these molecules could potentially uh, travel at between Venus and Earth? I mean, is it the speed of light, or would it be presumably much slower than the speed of oh, light? Oh, it's much, much slower, maybe a hundredth of the speed of light or something like that. Okay, it's so, all right, well, I'm just going to do some quick and dirty calculations in okay. the background. Okay. So over to you, Ron. You had a question. I cut you up, so please carry on. Uh, yeah, okay, well, we can't see each other, so that's that's fine. I uh, <laughs> always... I was just, uh, Professor, I was just curious about the, uh, all the satellites. I mean, most of them landed or their circuit boards melted halfway down through the atmosphere, but they, uh, their orbiters, like the Venus Express, that's still up there. Yes. And uh, does that have the capability of detecting something like the phosphine? I, I don't think so. I think they have considered it. There, there is not much in the way of optical microwave spectroscopy i think they are they're the, the, the more concerned with actually collecting material isn't it and i'm not i'm not 100% sure but i i doubt that they have the capacity to do that but okay maybe... cuz back in the 80s the venera what 15 and 16 from the uh, russians uh that was soviets was uh that orbiter had a radar mapper and thermal ir interferometer spectrometer and that sounds like they could have uh, collected that sort of data. Maybe nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. Maybe the resolution wasn't uh, wasn't good enough. And uh, I, d- I don't know. Yeah, there's probably the a resolution problem. Yeah, I just wondered if they have to, because this has gotten me confused as to how this current uh, discovery was made. Did it come from earthbound telescopes or? Was yeah, it, Earth, uh, earthbound telescopes. As far as I know, it's. I mean, I, do, I, I wasn't involved in this. I just I've read the, uh, the the paper in Nature. It's very quickly, not very thoroughly either. So I think I think uh, certainly it's from yeah. from Earthbound telescopes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's. Um, well, continue. A, a lot of a lot of very detailed information can be obtained from Earthbound telescopes. You can uh, we can identify uh, identify ring molecules. In uh, isn't it an interstellar space and so on? So, uh, so it's uh, oh sure they can analyze the atmosphere of a planet in another galaxy. Yeah, at this yeah point. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Looking for biosignatures in habitable planets is one of the aims of the next generation of telescopes, isn't it? Look for for signatures yeah. like the phosphine and and other molecular um, breakdown project products of life in very distant exoplanets. Yeah, professor. Yes, yes, I have a question from Go. Richard. He mm. says to ask you how you feel about the discovery. Uh, do you believe the evidence is weak or strong? Well, you did comment on that. But what, what will well, be required to confirm that there is indeed life in Venus's clouds? And ultimately, how complicated could that life have become? Is it only microbes or floating or uh, could there be an entire ecosystem floating 30 miles above the Venus surface? I think to answer your second question first, I, th I believe there has to be a microbial ecosystem uh, that really is thriving in the clouds of Venus. I mean, the microbes that are involved in that ecosystem might be really exotic, extremophiles, as they call them now, uh, with, with uncanny properties, uh, very, very sort of strong survival properties of uh, survival in acidic conditions and so forth, high temperatures, low temperatures, etc. So there, I think there will be an ecosystem. And um, in the answer to your earlier, the earlier part of the question, about how I think this, in, this plays out, I, I, I think it's been exaggerated. The importance is not, uh, um, I mean, I don't want to devalue the data, but I think this has to be the new new discovery, or within quotes discovery, has to be viewed in the context of the discovery of life signatures, life indicators of life that have existed from the early 1980s onwards. So uh, the compelling evidence that we, Fred Hoyle, myself, and a long uh, and a so long list of collaborators. Uh, we have put together this over uh, several decades, absolutely compelling evidence that there is microbial life and the degradation products of microbial life everywhere in the vast clouds of interstellar space, in fact, in external galaxies and so on. So the new Venus discovery should be seen in this wider context as confirmation of the ideas of cosmic panspermia, and this is the model for which I believe the evidence is absolutely over overwhelming. If you take all the evidence from astronomy together, then the existence of life on a cosmic scale is truly overwhelming. The existence of life on a planet like Venus is, is strongly indicated by this new data, and we have had suspicions that conditions were right in certain parts of the atmosphere for microbial life to exist. But uh, that is a minute part of the whole of the bigger story that uh, that life is everywhere. Indeed, I think we and all life on Earth are the, are the product of this vast cosmic living system. So, Professor, <laughs> you just touched upon my own personal question, which might seem so naive from a layperson, but I was just wondering the evolution of life on Venus, how that correlates with the evolution of life on Earth. Did Earth go through similar patterns, or is it so drastically different that there's no way to compare them? No, but, 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 the, but I think the real situation is that the the cosmic living system, the the cosmic panspermia system, encompasses every possible uh, contingency for life to survive. Right. So you would have you would have in that huge cosmic ensemble of bacteria, uh, bacteria that can live in high acidic regions, uh, in, within sulfuric acid clouds, in radioactive dumps. In deep in the Antarctic, in the deep freeze conditions, all those are there uh, as uh, variants of the of bacteria that are in a, in a truly cosmic on a co cosmic scale, 
And when a new planet or a planet like Venus uh, takes a certain shape with atmosphere that is acidic and so on, the the bacteria from this space environment, the space uh, system that takes root on Venus, are the ones that can survive there, right? So, so the environment. So you think there was life on the surface? I think at some. I mean, in terms of the history of Venus, there's it's 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 been disputed and argued for a while that at some point Venus might have been not too dissimilar to the Earth, and that there was a some kind of uh, planetary catastrophe that led to uh, the the present uh, type of atmosphere that you have and the greenhouse effects, uh, greenhouse uh, conditions with, with changed and so on. Well, I don't want to go into that, but I think I think the the lie uh, that that the Venus could have had different microbiota, different different uh, types of micro microbial microbial uh, ecologies at different stages in its history. Professor, well, uh, sorry, uh, Bob Harrison's uh, speaking. Uh, good morning. Um, good morning. Do you think there's any chance of us um, finding you talking about transference of life from Venus's atmosphere to the Earth? Mm. Do you think there's any chance of us discovering this Venusian life in our atmosphere uh, and, and identifying it as such as coming from a an atmosphere that's been different from ours, uh, microbes? Uh, evolved for a, a more sulfuric uh, atmosphere. Well, <clears throat> I think that even on the on the Earth today, we we have microbes that are called acidophiles, <laughs> microbes that thrive in in very high acidic environments. And so, uh, what if, if stuff? If a whole lot of stuff that is Venusian arrives at the Earth, uh, the the subset of ecology of the ecology that takes root on on the earth would be uh, would be basically tuned to the environmental conditions that exist on the place where it landed so it uh, i think most of the stuff that comes from mars would perish because if if it comes in areas and regions where the conditions where the environmental conditions do not uh, encourage the these microbes to survive and to replicate, then they just break break down and become chemicals, pure chemicals. Uh, but there may be a few regions, a very very uh, limited number of locations where the conditions may not be that far from what they enjoyed on the on on the apparent planet, which was. Uh, do you think it, what I was thinking of was uh, at times when we're aligned, you know, in conjunction with Venus, mm. whether it would be worthwhile scraping the outside of the International Space Station and seeing if there were any of these, uh, anything uh, that would match life from Venus. Yeah, certainly. I think that's that's a well worthwhile project to to suggest to someone that we should do that. Certainly, uh, there's no question about it. And and the outside of the space station has been examined by Russian um, biochemists recently. I think a couple of years ago they published a paper in which they found microorganisms on the outside that were really rare microorganisms on on the Earth. Very very rare, extremophilic. Uh, microorganisms, and they have great difficulty explaining how uh, such microbes could be lifted from the Earth uh, through a distance of now 400 kilometers. The International Space Station orbits at 400 kilometers, and there is no way that I think, and my colleagues who are atmospheric uh, scientists have confirmed this, there's no way in which uh, atmospheric processes on the Earth can lift microbes from maybe the Siberian deserts or Siberian regions in in Russia to the height of the International Space Station. So I think these are also 
what was found a couple of years ago on the International Space Station were genuine microbes that came from an external source, from comets, and just got splattered on the surface of uh, the space station. So I think you're, to answer your question about uh, conjunctions of Venus, this would be the best place to to test the hypothesis that Venus is throwing out some population of its microorganisms from its upper atmosphere and training it in the solar wind, and the solar wind would inevitably uh, interact with the surface of the space station. So you would expect the surface space station's surface to be a good collector on those occasions. Well, NASA has claimed on occasion that uh, impacts on the surface of a planet, in our case, Earth, mm. uh, sometimes are catastrophic, are strong enough that they throw bits and pieces of the surface of the planet that got hit all the way into space. And those mm. could conceivably carry microbes from that surface. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's been, uh, I mean, NASA has said that in recent times. We've been saying that for a very long time, scientists have yeah. been speculating that impacts like the impact that happened 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs became, yeah, the Sixalab crater impact, that not only killed off the dinosaurs, but it splashed back from the surface of the Earth a lot of microbiota that would have escaped from the Earth in the first instance and then later even from the entire solar system. Uh, the, this We have written papers on this, my, me and my colleagues yeah. have written a lot of a lot of uh, detailed calculations have been done showing that that kind of impact could uh, take microbiota away from a planet and, uh, and 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 seed other planets well is that credible with in the case of venus i mean the surface pressure there is like being a um, half mile underwater yeah you know, that's uh, that, what 800 yeah. bars or something yeah. And um, that's uh, I don't I don't speak metric well. No, I, I don't think that's an ideal yeah. that's yeah. that's an ideal case for imp impact driven microorganisms from the surface. You, I mean, the Earth is the Earth in in six to one million years ago was a pos was a good possibility, but um, yeah, but we never had an atmosphere as thick as Venus. No, Venus never. was Venus always like that, or did they did it start out differently and deteriorate? Which I think it probably, that argument you weigh on. Well, I think I think he must have started out uh, started off differently for sure. The atmosphere was generated subsequently, and uh, uh, and in the earliest uh, stages of the formation of Venus, you would have had uh, a pretty thin atmosphere. Is my would be my guess. Oh, just. Just to come back on my, my quick and dirty maths model. Mm, yeah, yeah. What do and, you get? Oh, yes. Well, I'm thinking it could be something in the region of 14 hours to get for a molecule to get from Venus to, to Earth. Yeah, I think that's that's a number that I recall from the oxygen O plus and, and C plus ions that were detected uh, in, I believe, in 1997 by the SOHO satellite. It's, it's about that time. So, uh, wow. It, it's during the, the, the conjunction. I mean, the conjunction takes uh, uh, certainly greater than that length of time. So during the conjunction, you'd have a, a stream of solar wind carrying ions like oxygen ions, carbon ions, and some, some small quantity of entrained dust particles, which could include the, the microbiota. Well, I'm delighted my, my quick and dirty math seems to work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, That's, that sounds right. Yeah, but I... it, it does allude to another question, I have to say, and yeah. that is that if the solar wind is the sort of prevalent means of transportation between Venus and Earth emanating from the epicenter, which is, of course, the sun, then does it mean that Mercury seeds Venus, Venus seeds the Earth, the Earth seeds Mars, and Mars feeds Jupiter, and Jupiter, Saturn, and so on? Is, there must be a direction, right? Yeah, there, is, there would be a direction. But I think the further out you go, the more, more uh, diffuse the, the stream gets, isn't it? I mean, Venus sure. and Earth are, are reasonably close, so you wouldn't get a, you wouldn't get a spreading out of the, of the column that uh, emanates from one place and reach true 
True. My, my yeah. point was that it would be unlikely if, for example, uh, the Earth had elements from Jupiter, because if the direction of travel is from the epicenter out yeah, from yeah, the, sure. the sun, yeah, yeah. then it would be coming down the, the road the wrong way, effectively. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, so only, does, the only only Earth and Mars will be the targets. Potentially. I see. I see. So Pluto, the furthest yeah. one out, must must have a little bit of everything. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> There's a comment here from Richard um, that uh, seems to pertain to what you're speaking of. He mentions that in your your original idea that you published in 2008 that there was specific times that the Earth and Venus orbit the Sun, and some of these possible microscopic Venetian life forms could conceivably leave the v Venus atmosphere and make their way to Earth. So is, is that what you're saying now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the times of conjunctions are the, uh, the sort of most favored moments for these transfers to happen. I think it could happen at other times, but in a very more, much more devious, much more indirect way, uh, t during during uh, conjunctions, and if it transits even better, if you can see the, uh, if, yeah, transits uh, are the best. But conjunctions are good enough, and when they are almost lined up, when Earth's, uh, Venus, Sun are in a straight line, then you would get the uh, the transfers much more. Uh, easily, and the next conjunction, I think, is twenty about two years from now. Um, professor, what could conceivably strip something out of the atmosphere? You know, we, it's yeah, yeah, it's pretty obvious it couldn't come from the surface. But you know, at uh, what thirty, forty miles above the uh, surface, yeah, it, you've got that cloud top level that we all want to talk about. Yeah, and, yeah, um, it, it, it skims. How different. would you? I think the solar wind interacts with uh, with uh, with the sort of tops of the clouds. So you you would get the skimming off of the of the cloud tops from Venus. Uh, oh, the solar wind would handle that. Okay. Thank yeah, you. essentially, essentially driv driven by the solar wind. I mean, that's the uh, the model that's been around for a bit. Professor, if we would send if we were to send a a a probe to Venus to try and find life directly. Mm. What would that mission look like? What, what methods would it use to collect? How, how, how would it collect the, the microbes and how would it uh, establish that there was living things uh, in, in the atmosphere that had been collected? Yeah, I think, I think the way that I would do that is the way that we collected... Uh, stratospheric air from the Earth, right? In 2001, we sent, uh, used balloons to to send what I call cryosamplers. So these were huge tubes, sort of three or four meter long tubes, like these uh, uh, camping gas uh, tubes that we used to have, right? Uh, the, the, these were evacuated. These tubes were evacuated. The, all the air was essentially pumped out to very high levels of vacuum, and then sealed. With the seals being opened, uh, when the uh, when the tube, when these huge canisters or tubes reached the desired altitude in the atmosphere, which was in the case of the atmosphere, it was some 41 kilometers. So, as soon as the the valves are opened, then the air and the bacteria, if there are any, aerosols, dust, and so on, just rushes into the, the tube, and then the tube is sealed, right, and then brought back to the Earth. And I think that is the, the way that I would uh, uh, deal with the Venusian bacteria as well. S send an evacuated uh, sort of gas or one of these gas kind of tubes, steels, stainless steel tubes, uh, remotely opening the valve when it reaches the uh, 50 kilometers or whatever above the, the Venus surface. And then, then they are, and the aerosols and the bacteria would just rush into the, uh, into the tube and you bring back the tube. So that's the, that would, would be the method that I would suggest. 
Professor, as a follow-up, this is Andrew Curry speaking. Nice to meet you. You must really feel like you're 22 again and having to defend your thesis with all, all of us here behind the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, 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 I'm nearly three or four times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, well, no worries. Where You can defend it all you can because we'll never be able to, to usurp you. Listen, um, uh, one of Richard's links was actually right on course with what um, Bob was saying. And Kinthea mentioned it, and the title was, In a complete fluke, a European spacecraft is about to fly past Venus and could look for signs of life. So this is that European-Japanese uh, yeah. probe yeah. that's going past. Do you think – I think they're going to go by – go around twice. I thought I read that. But yeah. could that help us confirm? Yeah, I, th I, th I think there, there, there are going to be many more Venus uh, probes and, and confirmation or otherwise – of this uh, of this new claim of phosphine or life on on Venus, that's going to happen for sure in the next within the next couple of years. I think it's it's an exciting future that we have, or maybe for the, in the months ahead of us, and we would find uh, ample evidence to confirm the existence of of life on every habitable niche in our solar system. I don't think there's any place that would be left out. If it, is, if it is habitable, if it is a congenial place for microorganisms, then you would, have, you would find microorganisms. That would be the, uh, the prediction from the Hoyle Vikramasinghe model of cos cosmic life. Yeah. Uh, so just to follow up, I know we're about to go into the break, but maybe it's something you could answer coming back. I know back in September of 2019, before you know, all heck broke loose on our planet. Uh, the uh, per, um, chief scientist for NASA, I think Green, Jim Green, I think his name is, he was interviewed by a number of different pub publications. And one of the things he said was he doesn't think humanity is ready for the kind of announcement that the scientific world, I think, is getting, you know, warmed up and ready to maybe announce, especially with uh, Perseverance going to Jazeera Crater and Mars. Why has there been such a hesitation on the part of our space agencies to admit what we all kind of know anyways? And why is yeah. Jim saying that? I, I know we only got a couple of minutes. You can maybe start your answer. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I have read that. I've heard that remark made. And I, uh, it baffles me as well. I don't understand it. So I think it's not for agencies, it's not, not for universities or research centers or NASA to decide whether people are ready to, uh, to uh, have the results of their experiments. Uh, after all, taxpayers, your taxpayers have paid for NASA to do all this, and they are fully entitled to know the result of these experiments and these investigations. Uh, who are they to decide whether humanity is ready to be told this or not? We are not, uh, we are not children anymore. We are not. Uh, it's it's like what they call a nanny state. And the nanny is looking after uh, the the populace and deciding what is good for them to hear and what is not good for them to hear. We need to hear the facts. Yeah, totally agree. And we're coming up on break now. We are listening to. Professor Chandra Wickrama Singh enlighten us on life outside in the cosmos. The show tonight is called Life on the Morning Star, and this is The Other Side of Midnight with co-hosts from our imaging team. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.